Our first speaker today is Alan Landy, who is professor of immunology and chair of the department at Rush University. Alan obviously has spoken at these meetings several times in the past, but it's a pleasure to welcome him back. Alan, where are you hiding? Well, thank you, uh, John, and, and thanks, uh, Paul, for inviting me back. Uh, as, uh, as John said, I'm here in Chicago, so I didn't have too far to travel. And what I'm going to do is covering the, uh, the topic today of HIV cure, which I think is clearly an area of interest to the audience, and give you an update on where we are in, in the field of development. Uh, I've titled it today, On the Road to an HIV Cure, How Far Have We Come?, just to give you an idea of, of where we are. Um, this is my um, uh, financial relations uh, learning objectives and first slide. So what you'll see here is the uh, concepts of what we know about um, HIV uh, and current therapies, as we'll hear a lot more today from the speakers. Uh, as you know, when we patients first go on to antiretroviral therapy, there's a significant uh, drop in their uh, viral load uh, down to uh, undetectable levels with the current assays, but that the virus is still there. I mean, it hasn't been completely eliminated. And uh, as we think about the interruption of heart, uh, we then would see this uh, rebound. And what we now can say that the HIV itself can stay undetectable uh, in uh, here in, in cells uh, and in other sites in the body and survive for many years um, and also be undetected by the immune system. In several cases, we may actually see decreases in the immune responses as patient's virus is uh, diminished on, on therapy. Uh, we also note then that whenever uh, even a person who's on therapy for many years, if we stop their therapy, the virus will rebound. So, and we've seen in various cases that we think we've had cures in patients, which I'll talk about. Uh, ultimately, those individuals did uh, rebound from their virus when the antiretroviral treatment is uh, discontinued. So this certainly leaves the concept that we need to come back to that patients that you're now treating in your various practices are on lifelong treatment because uh, we're not eliminating the virus entirely if we stop therapy or control it. Now, the question is we think about a cure uh, is the idea is how do we define this? And there are several scenarios that I think would are important to uh, discuss here. Um, the first of this is what would be called a sterilizing cure. Okay, so this is an important concept to think about is that the viral genome is, uh, as you know, is irreversibly incorporated into the genome of every uh, infected cell, um, and every HIV infected cell would have to be removed. So that's a very tall order to ask to get rid of every HIV infected cell in the patient. Uh, there are many sites uh, in the body, in the brain, and other sites that would be very hard to eliminate. So at this time, uh, in terms of the field in general, we're not really thinking about a sterilizing cure, although I'll talk about one individual in whom we've actually achieved a, a cure in a moment. What we're really looking at in the context of HIV cure is a functional cure. So that's the concept I'd like to get people to think about. And what this is, is that HIV is not completely removed from the body but is controlled in a way uh, that it remains quiescent, even in the absence of antiretroviral therapy. So the concept here is we want to get our patients off of therapy and want the, the virus to be controlled off of therapy. And I'll talk about 
through the course of my talk today the means in which we have to actually achieve that. As I said, there is one case of a way in which we did see uh, an actual cure, and the only case of this uh, potential cure uh, so far is Timothy Brown, known as the Berlin patient. So this is the one case in which currently um, one is looking for, vi one, one did all the studies to look for virus in, uh, in this patient. They did not find it. This was a patient who underwent, as I'll come back to later, an allogeneic bone marrow transplant that had to go through an, a lot of preparative regimens, and we yet still do not know uh, what of that transplant uh, procedure really contributed to the idea that the, to the concept of the cure in this patient. That's really an area, again, of investigation, and I'll come back to the use of transplants in the end. So we really, to date, only have this one example uh, of, the, of this cure, uh, potential functional cure in the patient. When I mentioned to you the idea that there were other patients that there was a lot of enthusiasm for that were aiming for sustained remission off of therapy, and what you can see here, this is the looking at the patient, uh, Timothy uh, Ray Brown. So this is the virus undetectable out here now almost seven years for this individual who underwent a transplantation, um, uh, an allogeneic bone marrow transplantation with a uh, Delta 32 uh, bone marrow, which means that it lacked the uh, CCR5 co-receptor. The cells that were transplanted lacked that co-receptor for HIV. There were other cases that got a lot of enthusiasm. You may have seen them and read them in the scientific literature or in the lay press about the uh, Mississippi baby and about the uh, Boston uh, bone marrow transplant recipients. And in both these cases, in the, in the baby here and in the two cases from uh, Boston, which were, again, bone marrow transplants but not with the Delta 32 resistant uh, cells that Timothy Brown got, uh, when these patients went off of therapy, eventually the virus did rebound. So even in those cases that we thought there might have been a, another cure that had been shown in the literature, this was not at all seen. And ultimately here, out at this number of, of around 20 months here, 10 months here, uh, we saw a viral rebound. This is looking at a typical person who, if we would uh, have good viral suppression over a period of year, we'd then see a virologic rebound when stopping therapy. So although we were able to extend the time off of therapy with these three individuals, we did not ob ob obtain a, a permanent uh, remission of the virus, and it did rebound. So again, only one case to date, and we'll talk about how we're using this case to understand more about the virus and its, uh, what happens in terms of cure research. When we're thinking about this, we need to think, first of all, about the cells that we're targeting and mostly we're thinking about T cells. Now there are various cells in the body that may be a source of virus, and most of where we think the virus hides in the host are in the latently infected T cells. And in this case, when we treat patients with viral load, we can see that it goes down below here, the uh, cutoffs of uh, 50 in this slide, and you know, as you know, we've reduced the, the uh, current cutoffs down to 20 in some of the current assays as well to further and what happens here is that we have the latently infected virus that we can, again, activate and produce uh, replication-competent virus from. Uh, here we'll also have additional latent cells that can drive viral replication. And then on CART, this is what eventually happens. The cells go silent here as well. 
And so what we're looking at in the host are these silent cells that have integrated provirus. So if you look, and I'll talk about how we measure this, we can find in our patient's blood, if you go in and look, whereas they'll have an undetectable viral load by your current cutoffs, the uh, clinical assays, if we then took their cells, we'd still find uh, HIV DNA. So it's still present. We haven't eliminated it. Uh, and we're going to also talk about the question of, is all the virus latent in the host? We've heard things about what about sites in other parts of the body, like the lymph nodes, the brain, or tissues. And we'll talk about that in a moment in terms of the potential uh, of suppressing the virus. Okay, it just goes through a number of these. So here we have then the potential for homeostatic proliferation and maintenance then of the viral reservoir. And this may be uh, due to a variety of stimuli, either antigens or cytokines in the host, that'll help maintain then this latent T cell pool. So one of the questions is where is the reservoir? If we, we think there's silent virus in our T cells, integrated DNA, what about other parts of the body? And as you may or may not remember from uh, some of your classes in medical school or during training and uh, different areas that the gastrointestinal tract is your largest lymphoid organ in the body. So just remember that in the GI tract, um, that's where most of your immune system is. And when we look at the virus in terms of targeting uh, infection, we find that that's where the virus will go and deplete a lot of the cells initially is in the gastrointestinal tract. And it, it actually goes by what we call the, uh, we call it the Sutton principle. Have, have people here heard about Willie Sutton and who he is? He was a famous bank robber. And when he was asked, why does he rob banks? Because that's where the money is. And when we think about why does the virus go to the GI tract, because that's where the susceptible target cells are uh, in the host. And in this case, what we can find is that when we look at the uh, incorporated DNA here in blood, lymph node, and then rectal CD4 cells, you can see there's a higher load then of these latent uh, virally infected targets in the GI tract. And these are CD4 cells from patients on suppressive therapy for greater than three years. So if we're looking even for the latent virus pool, it's greatly enhanced in the gastrointestinal tract so that if we're trying to target therapies to drive out the latent virus, we have to think about the role of the GI tract. And why that happens is the following. Uh, it may be, and there's been some interest in whether the antivirals themselves can get to the tissue. Uh, a number of papers have come out and recently uh, ones about not only the GI tract but the lymph node and the fact that there are high, as I mentioned, concentration of susceptible cells, the CCR5 positive cells, which are the targets. And then interestingly, the Th17 cells. These are cells of the immune system that are eliminated in the GI tract and are important for maintaining the gut barrier integrity. And you may have heard of a concept in HIV called the leaky gut. And when these Th17 cells, which make IL-17, are important for maintaining and producing IL-17 that maintains the gut barrier integrity. And when you lose those cells, your gut becomes leaky, uh, and then you get the uh, systemic translocation of microbial products leading to immune activation. So when we think about the latent reservoir, how do we measure it? Uh, first and foremost, we can look at the virus itself and look at the plasma virus. We have current clinical assays that measure down around 20 copies, but we can also now use more experimental assays 
called the single copy assays that allow us to go down to one copy. These are still experimental, but in the future as we begin to standardize and use these in more of our trials, we're going to move that uh, bar in terms of our measurements clinically. They go down even further down to single copy assays as we think about it. We can also think about the viruses I mentioned inside of cells. So we can have integrated DNA or HIV RNA. And we can have either total or integrated DNA. We can have different forms of RNA, which are called unspliced or spliced RNA. All of these are measured in our experimental trials now when we think about it. These aren't things that are going to be readily available at the clinical level, but they are being done in clinical trials. And it's really important to note that, as I said, residual viremia can be measured in the plasma to the single copy, and tissue or cell associated is measured as these measures, as I've just alluded to. Those are still experimental procedures. We also note, if it, there we go, uh, that we can measure the actual replication competence. So this is just looking at the virus. This is looking it at the infectious virus, the virus that can be transmitted and is infectious. We now have newer laboratory assays, and one of the ones that's uh, being looked at is the quantitative viral outgrowth assay, the QOVA, as it's called, QVOA, I'm sorry, QVOA. Uh, and that's a new name of an assay that's now been developed. It's actually going to be made available for clinical trials through a government uh, reference lab now for many of our clinical trials that are studying this. And so I think we'll be able to look at this further in the future. We're also interested in eliminating uh, latently infected cells through treatment during acute infection, activating latent infection, boosting immunity, reducing immune activation, or stem cell transplant. And I'll cover each of these briefly. If we look at very early ART, it reduces the reservoir size here. So if we treat early, and this is work from the Thai trial, that if we treat patients when they're early diagnosed, we can show that there's a very low reservoir of HIV DNA that goes up if, as we treat later, and this is within two weeks of diagnosis, so we can really affect the reservoir by early treatment. And you can see now that we have, in this case, a, a significant reduction of the viral DNA, but even though very early art reduces reservoirs, we still get rebound, and this, uh, this is a model system looking in the primate models that even in the earliest art here where we can time the treatment and this is day three, uh, time to viral rebound here with the very earliest uh, treatments can go up and down based on the, uh, in the actual treatment. In this case, these were macaques treated with tenofovir, FTC, and dolrotegravir for 24 weeks. And what we can show is even in the earliest treatment of animals, even within a few days of therapy, and we stop the therapy, we're still going to get viral rebound uh, in those animals. So we're not curing the patient. So you might think, well, if we find everybody, treat them early at the time of acute infection, that's not going to cure the patient. There's still going to be residual virus, and we've seen this in our animal models. So we're now looking at approaches here that are looking at a new strategy you might have heard about, the shock and kill strategy. The best chance to eliminate is to reactivate the virus from the reservoir cells and then make those uh, cells susceptible to killing by art. This is research looking at the shock and kill approaches using what are called latency reversing agents. So there's a whole new class of agents that are being looked at. We're taking a page from our uh, K 
cancer uh, therapy groups using these histone deacetylase inhibitors and PKC inhibitors. These are inhibitors used predominantly in the cancer world. We're also using toll-like receptor uh, agonists. These are potential, uh, and the point is, though, they haven't yet shown a cure effect, and I'll show you some more data. Although we're using these to reactivate virus, and, but we're not yet curing the patients, and again, the most effective of these reagents are probably going to be used in combinations of LRAs or the LRAs plus immunomodulation that I'll show you in a moment. So this is the, the actual shock and kill or kick and kill approach. We take the, the cells, we activate them here with the LRA, get out the virus, and then think, are we going to get cell death? And the answer is, what we found is that the cells themselves, once we reactivate the virus from work originally published by Bob Silicano's lab, did not show cell death. So what we now know is the kick is not enough alone with the LRAs. We need an additional effect of a kill approach, and that means activating the immune system to kill these targets. And what we're looking at are things like therapeutic vaccines and immunomodulators uh, that are called from the class of checkpoint inhibitors, again, looking at new agents like uh, PDL1 that are being used in cancer chemotherapy. As I mentioned, a number of HDAC inhibitors have been used to reactivate, but again, fail to eliminate latent reservoirs. These are studies with Saha or Varinostat is able to act, reactivate, but again, did not uh, show reservoir reduction. Uh, Romadepsin has been used and no reservoir reduction. And then finally, Panabinostat. So these are three different uh, in HDAC inhibitor classes that are used uh, clinically in your cancer patient populations. But what we're now finding is that they don't effectively eliminate, meaning we have to look at additional approaches. There we go. Whoops. Uh, sorry. Another concept I want to introduce to the group today is one where I mentioned shock and kill. That means we're going to shock out the virus and then kill those cells. There's actually another way is to drive the virus deeper. A new concept you may have not heard of, block and lock. This is a way uh, where we're actually going to drive the virus deeper into latency. So after there's a sharp increase in viral load and circulating plasma, the viral copy load decreases after heart, but you still get viral blips. We're now looking at the potential of using TAD inhibitors. Now, these haven't been tried, but there is this, again, this is being done in vitro, but hasn't been tried yet in any patient or animal models as a way of driving the virus into deep latency. It's been done in cell line models and primary cells uh, after uh, using cells from patients who have been uh, stopped on therapy. So this is all in vitro, hasn't yet moved forward in clinical development. So it gives us an opportunity to think about another strategy of driving the virus into deep latency. So I mentioned to you we need to combine the shock with a kill or host-directed therapeutic vaccine, checkpoint inhibitors, immune modulatory drugs, or finally, potentially with cell therapy. Uh, what we've done here in terms of therapeutic vaccines, they've been looked at to augment HIV-specific responses. They can also result in decay of reservoir or control of virus. There are a number of older concepts of therapeutic vaccines. The one that's getting a lot of interest today is a CMV-vectored vaccine uh, being developed by Lewis Pickers Group in Oregon. And um, if this can go back. 
not, could somebody just, there we go. So this was a Nature paper that came out in 2013 about immune clearance of SIV using a CMV vectored vaccine. It's a highly unusual uh, induced T cell responses, uh, and it shows viral control uh, in uh, animals that are infected with SIV. Uh, again, there is also the opportunity of a functional cure and apparent eradication in protected animals. So here is a, a great deal of enthusiasm and interest now in this new vectored vaccine. Only in animal models to date, we're still years away from human trials, but this looks like a potentially new therapeutic approach that might have some value in this shock and kill strategy of driving out the latent virus as well. I mentioned to you immune checkpoint inhibitor blockade. These are all being developed, especially the PD-1. It has revolutionized the treatment of cancer, especially melanoma. We've changed the face of cancer therapy, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Volberdeem could comment greatly as a cancer physician how this has changed how patients are treated today in hemonc uh, clinics all over the world. Uh, what we've done, and Dr. Aaron, who's one of your uh, speakers today, did this study in the, uh, chaired this study in the ACTG, was the first safety study of anti-PDL1 in participants on heart. So this was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial that was done. Uh, in this case, single doses of anti-PDL1 antibody in patients on suppressive art. Uh, we were blocking this pathway and looking for enhancement of HIV-specific responses. So again, a checkpoint inhibitor approach, similar to what we would do in a cancer patient. First study in HIV patients. And ultimately, uh, what we found is it was uh, tolerated. There were some SAEs that were consistent with autoimmunity, and maybe during the questions, if there's some questions on this, Dr. Aaron could certainly uh, comment more about the outcomes of the trial. Um, and the question is, ultimately, uh, this, there were some uh, actual uh, significant problems in animal models with ocular changes that at this point, this particular anti-PDL1 is not moving forward. There were some effects on the uh, immune system, but not significant enough effects to move this ahead, at least this particular anti-PDL1, although other, candidate, uh, other candidates in this class are being looked at anti-PD1 or other anti-PDL1. So although this trial did not give us a huge positive signal, it's still a lot of interest in moving this concept forward. We're also looking at a variety of immune modulator drugs. That includes rapamycin or mTOR inhibitors that are again used in the transplant world. So we take a, a page out of other clinical areas. Uh, Jack stat inhibitors are being used, interferon alpha, and then cytokines are being used as well to enhance immunity and to drive out latent virus. One of the ones we're working on is a uh, cytokine interleukin 21 uh, that has been now we're developing an agonistic antibody that enhances cytotoxicity of NK cells from HIV patients on CART. So this is just showing this is work being done in collaboration with Sharon Lewin and uh, DU in, in Australia. So we're now looking at new approaches, harnessing the immune system. This is an anti-IL, this is an agonistic IL-21 antibody that will enhance, in this case, the innate immune system as the kill strategy. So we're not only enhancing the adaptive immune system, like CD8 cells, but we're also going to be thinking about enhancing the innate immune system and natural killer cells, and this is one approach by which we're doing that. So I'd like to, in the last part of my talk, follow up then on where are we with the stem cell transplants and allogeneic transplant approach, because that's the one success that we have. The Berlin patient, 
CCR5 CCR5 negative stem cell transplantation. The emerging race to cure again uh, with the patient being cured with this transplant approach. So this led us to a whole new field of evaluation and development, uh, the gene therapy strategies. So in this case, we took naturally resistant cells in the case of Timothy Brown. Those were CCR5 Delta 32 cells that would be naturally resistant. Now we're going to take and do this in the uh, in vitro setting to make cells HIV resistant and then give them back to the patient. So there are a variety of ways that can do this. We can add something that inhibits infection. We can remove something that's necessary, and that would be removing the CCR5 co-receptor. We can actually now use molecular tools to actually target that gene, remove it from the cells using uh, antisense, ribozymes, RNAi, and a variety of other approaches to actually remove that gene and then give back those cells, uh, either stem cells or CD4 T cells, back to the patient uh, and, and, and use that as an approach. And then we can also sacrifice uh, any newly infected cells using LTR-inducible suicide genes. So there are a variety of ways now to make cells uh, resistant. I, I here we're also going to use uh, fusion inhibitor, transdominant, REVs, antisense. Again, this is just putting in genes that are going to make the cell resistant to the viral infection. And then this is the gene therapy approach to eliminate HIV, whereby we take cells from the patients uh, and we leukophorese them, again, taking out a unit of blood. We get CD4 T cell isolation. We expand those T cells uh, in the laboratory. We then modify them. This is using one of those modifying molecular scissors called the zinc finger. You may have heard this term. This is a new approach called the zinc finger uh, endonucleases. It's a way of uh, basically a molecular scissors that allows you to now cut out the uh, CCR5 gene from the patients and then basically take these gene-modified cells and give them back uh, in, in the, uh, to the patient, reinfusing then uh, those cells, uh, the patient's own cells back there. This is in autologous R5 uh, cells now that are going to be resistant. And so we then can add also cyclophosphamide, other preparative regimens to the patients. I mentioned to you earlier, we don't know yet what part of the bone marrow transplant process allowed the one patient to be cured. So there are, as you know, preferative regimens. You have to make space for your bone marrow transplant. Part of that might enhance the abilities to remove virus. You may also give radiation or other therapies in preparation or chemotherapies. All of those are being looked at in this process of transplantation to see which of those are the main contributors. There was then a trial that was published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2014 from uh, the group at Penn, headed by Pablo Tabas. Infusion of the CCR5 modded cells is safe and the cells survive. So these are showing you then, these are the total T cells, the unmodified T cells, and then looking at the actual um, the cells to survive in the host, the CCR5 modified cells. And they did show an effect in this case after treatment interruption that you could preserve those cells and that they would actually provide some protection. So there are again some indications that a bone marrow transplant with this approach could work. There are further studies ongoing in this field, but is this going to be practical? I think in the end 
we have to ask ourselves. These are great proof of concepts. But how many of you are going to have all your patients, as many patients as you see in your practice, how practical is it going to be to everybody undergoing today a bone marrow transplant? So I think that's the question of how do we reduce this to practice. So again, infusion of these modified cells expanded. It was safe and well tolerated. Durable increases in both CD4 counts in total. Uh, CCR modified T cells persist. And the cytoxin conditioning further improves. So again, that's the question of what is the cytoxin conditioning regimen do for the patient. Those are other approaches that we're trying independently. We're trying to look at these other approaches to enhance, and so we may be able to en actually enhance in the cure strategies just with some of the preparative approaches. The other gene therapy strategy is to harness the immune system. We're now taking and taking the HIV specific, we're modifying T cells so that they can now be directed specifically to the virus. These are called CAR T cells, and I'll show you a picture of that, where we're making HIV-specific T cell receptors. We're also using uh, adaptive responses in terms of the uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies. So there's a whole new approach called these adeno-associated viral vectors. These are vectors which you can now inject, and these are being done in monkey studies today, and you can get long-lasting antibody production from these vectors. And they've now shown uh, some work from Ron DeRosier's lab and others that you can get long-lasting suppression of virus with these AAV vectors, which can last now almost one to two years. So this is a new approach that might also be there. I mentioned NK cells. We're now looking at engineering NK cells as part of the process, and then also looking at genome editing and host restriction. And then this last slide just shows you these HIV-specific cars. This is a way of targeting now in the HIV-specific cells. You can now target the HIV cell through these uh, cytotoxic T cells and groups like Jim Riley's group at the University of Pennsylvania have been pioneering this approach where you're engineering the immune system now by molecular tools to specifically target the HIV-specific cell. And, and you can then identify those cells by reactivating the virus. So you would then combine a CAR strategy with a reactivation strategy on cells that would be reactivated to express viral antigens now they're going to become targets. They're no longer going to be invisible to the immune system. They're going to be targets once you reactivate the virus, and now they can be eliminated potentially. So in summary, where we are in the field today is multiple but rare examples of remission. We've seen what, how rare it is. It's one. <laughs> That's how rare. You saw the other cases that were very exciting, but they've also rebounded. Uh, it gives hope for a cure. Strategies have been tested in early proof of concepts. That's where we are. A lot of early proof of concept human studies, mostly in animal models and also further back, as I showed, the lock and block strategy still in vitro for those approaches. Again, activating latency, gene therapy, immune modulators, and reducing immune activation. Unlikely will be achieved by purely reducing the size of the reservoir. So it's not just going to be the latency reversing agents. It's not just going to be getting the virus out. We're going to need to harness the immune system, and we're going to need to learn from other fields, especially our colleagues in cancer. And then significant additional challenges to find a strategy that is cheap, scalable, and widely available. Is bone marrow transplant that strategy? That's the issue. And then finally, our future challenges, developing intervention with acceptable risk and toxicities that is cost-effective. This is a point. Your patients are doing well on stable art. So how are we going to change the paradigm of treatment? That's the key. 
Development of a biomarker, that's another big area that can detect very early levels of virus, predict duration of remission, and effective partnerships, community, and engagement of the private sector. So it's got to be public-private, the community, the academic world, the industry world, all have to work together. And then finally, I think, uh, yeah, universal access, oops, universal access to heart must remain a top priority because it works. That's really the bottom line. That's where we are today, and that's what we need to deal with. And then finally, um, keeps going. Can I go back one? There we go. On the road to a cure, how far have we come? Again, I think we still have a ways to go. And then I'd just like to thank, this is uh, something you'd see when you fly into Chicago, Russia's new hospital uh, here with over, this, it, it dwarfs now the, the, tow the, uh, the Sears Tower. But uh, this is how Rush just invested a lot of money. Uh, I'd like to thank Collaborators University of Melbourne, uh, George Washington, University of North Carolina, Joe Aaron sitting here, uh, National Cancer Institute, Jeff Lifson, uh, Monash University, DU, and USC, Paula Cannon. Thank you for your attention. We have a few minutes for questions. If uh they're passing out cards in which you can write your questions. You stand up here. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. There's microphones. I guess it was all clear. <laughs> I guess everybody's still uh, not had enough coffee today. Okay. Uh, well, maybe. I guess we have a few minutes. Maybe Joe, would you like to comment as maybe I'll ask, I'll, I'll actually start pulling a people out of the audience. Since Joe is, uh, Dr. Aaron is actually the uh, chair of the HIV Cure Committee for the AIDS Clinical Trial Group. So I'd like to actually, since he works on this from a very practical <laughs> level, thinking about how we can implement where he might see this going. You know, I, I actually, Ellen, I agree with almost everything you said. In fact, everything you said. We, we have an awful lot of progress to make. I think that the thing for me is that it's very, very slow and incremental. It's like, uh, you know, where we started 25 years ago. We're kind of in like the AZT monotherapy uh, period for, for um, uh, HIV cure. And I, I think practically, for us anyway, in the ACTG, the things that are available now are these latency reversing agents. And I think you talked about the uh, you know, tweaking the host immune response, and I think the checkpoint inhibitors, you know, working with interferon modulators, whether it's IL-15 or that antibody that you mentioned, the, the IL-21 agonist, um, I think it's incredibly in incremental, and, and I, you know, the bottom line is we need to get people on therapy as soon as possible. I think that the, the people who, if we ever develop a cure, the people who get cured are going to be the people who have small reservoirs. Uh, who have been treated early and have healthy immune systems. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point because although I showed you the data on the acute infection, 
As we know now, and you'll hear from uh, speakers coming up, that the, uh, the STAR trial showed us that we want to get people on therapy as soon as possible. And it's those patients who we start early are going to have those small reservoirs. And as we develop these new cure strategies, those are the patients we're wanting to target very clearly because those are going to be where we're going to have the best success going forward. Any other comments or everything's clear and great. Thank you again. Alan, thank you very much. That was a, a wonderful summary of a very complex field.